The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So all of us have been hearing and did hear a lot about the Unite the Right rally. We did a lot of talking about that here beforehand. Had contemplative events, interfaith events. And we had events afterwards, after the, after the rally as well. Um, one of the latest was the e workshop on how to hate without hating, how to address hate without hating. <laughs> not meant, not meant, erase, erase it. <laughs> um, and you know, I think that the events that happened in August were um, dramatic and for some of us I think traumatic. Uh, and I think all of the events like this happen on both a group level, an interpersonal level as it, di as it did for all of us, and also on a very personal level. And tonight what I wanted to do was to talk about on the personal level because indeed the events in August, the Unite the Right rally, and particularly one event, had, it did have a personal impact for me. And I wanted to share that for you and draw out some reflections that I had as a, as, as a result of that. Um, one of the events, and that was the event that Julie um, orchestrated and organized on the, t on the Saturday morning before the rally. Uh, caused me to really stop and look at the question, what is true for me? Um, and the story was, as I think all of you know, Ju Julie, had this, Julie had this wonderful event of loving kindness meditation uh, in Justice Park just before the rally. And what a beautiful thing to offer, loving kindness meditation. So I had done some other things prior to the event, uh, prior to the demonstration. And originally I said, yes, I, I wanted to attend the meditation on Saturday morning. But as the day grew closer, a voice, a question kept coming up to me. And the question was, is this really the right appropriate way for me to express? And I mean on this morning mindfulness meditation event. And I considered a lot of different things. My uh, sense about protests and my sense, just a lot of different considerations. And I really recognized that it didn't feel right for me. And so I told Julie that just before the event that, you know what, I really wasn't going to be coming. But here's the point that I want to get to. That's background. The point that I want to get to was that um, a day or two after I told Julie that I wasn't be coming, this little voice in my head said, you should have gone. Why didn't you go? And I, this is what I wanted to talk about and start with, the negativity bias of the brain. I think all of you have been hearing, you do know, but I'll say again, that neuroscience scientists have been discovering that our mind, our brain, has a negativity bias. It sees threat, right? It sees threat everywhere. It tells us what is wrong. And this was important for our survival as a species. It remains important. 
we have to be able to discern what's wrong with what's right. And we all know, and it dogs us, that this critical mind will go on and on and on and on. Um, so once we start getting caught up in the critical mind, it becomes really difficult, if not impossible, to judge something accurately, to understand what's really true accurately. We're so much involved in judgment. Judgment clouds the mind. Judgment clouds the mind, and we can't see what's really true. And the mind's favorite topic, the critical mind's favorite topic, is you. Right? That's it. You. Me. That's it. It just wants to tell you that you're under threat. And under the guise, you know, of protecting you, it's going to criticize you too. You did that one wrong, and so you're opening up yourself to more whatever problems. And on and on it goes, I don't think I need to say too much about it, because I think every one of us are an expert on that topic, hmm? an expert on that topic. So um, here's where our practice comes in, and we talk about this all the time, the practice of mindfulness and the practice of compassion. We need to realize that the critical mind isn't personal. And we get all wound up, take it personally, and we start acting on that basis. It's not. It's just what the mind does. It's going to adapt to whatever the circumstances are and criticize you. Don't buy in. Can we remember that? No, we don't. We forget it time and again. So it helps for me to say, oh, this isn't personal when your mind goes into its critical spin. Don't buy in. Hmm? Pull out and remember that. Thoughts are not facts. Isn't that a potent thought? Thoughts aren't facts. Remembering that. Remembering that. So that leads to two major reflections that I want to share tonight. And one of them, it starts with the fact that I forgot that thoughts aren't facts. And I started buying in for a day or two after my critical mind get, got going, and my mind started criticizing me. And it told me, you know, I didn't go because you didn't go, it told me, is because this was potentially dangerous. I was being cowardly is what my mind told me. Now, this ties in to with my self-image of myself. Because I have always been really active, I've been athletic, am athletic, and I've put myself in, throughout my life in places where, um, you know, it might have been considered dangerous at some times, and all has come out all right. And here it was on this beautiful event, and I said no. So my mind had a field day with, with that saying no. So the practice, mindfulness and compassion. And, and that requires some reflection, right? Stopping to notice, oh, this is the critical mind. Is it true? Is what I'm thinking really compassionate? And is it really, is it really true? That's what I noticed. Maybe it was a couple of days afterwards, because you see these critical thoughts went on in the background. You know, I was plowing through the, my day, and it was in the background, and I wasn't really listening too much, but I was feeling not so great about all these thoughts that were coming in on me. So that brings me the importance of us being compassionate 
and compassion to ourselves. Now, when we really look, when we look at something and notice, um, is it true? Why did I really do that? It is very important to put ourselves back into the place when the event actually happened. And in this case, when I told Julie, no, I couldn't come. As opposed to all of this criticism that my mind was building up on top of it. It prevented me from seeing what was real. Now, sometimes what is true or what is real really is a problem. Maybe you didn't act according to your highest ideals. Does that happen to us often? Enough? Hmm? Um, going back to the moment of and looking clearly at why you did what you did. And as I said, maybe you'll see you didn't act according to your highest ideals. There's a story that Rodney Smith tells. Rodney is a Vipassana teacher and a whole lot more than that. And he tells a story about when he was a young social worker. He was working with uh, middle school kids. And he said it was the day before Christmas vacation. And a, a boy came to him, 10 or 11 years old, came to him very upset, he said, about a disagreement that he was having with his sister. And Rodney spoke with him for a while, and he said, you know, so we'll talk more about this later. Come back after the vacation, and we'll, really, we'll go into it. So he talked with him, as I said, for a bit. Well, the vacation happened, and lo and behold, the boy commits suicide during vacation. Rodney came back from vacation to find out that this child had committed suicide. You can imagine what he went through, and he talked about that. I mean, he just raked himself over the coals with self-blame. He could have taken the time. And he said, you know, he was, that was, he was there to help these kids. Now he said, now there were other times he helped many kids, or, and he was with many kids, and there were other times he told a child, no, well, let's talk about this later, and nothing really happened as a result. This time, it did. And the upshot, he said, it took him a long time, a long time, to forgive himself, to recognize that blaming himself and continuing to blame himself really didn't help a thing. He knew he had made a mistake, and to say he was sorry was way under, under expressing it. Mistakes he realized, and he said, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. Most of them don't have dreadful consequences, tragic consequences, as this one did. This one did have a tragic consequence. But there is a difference between carrying guilt and taking responsibility. He learned he had to take responsibility for what he did, and he did take responsibility. But to carry guilt around with him, means simply to dig himself into a hole and never be able to get her out of it, like a heavy burden that he would carry on his back. So he learned he had to forgive himself. Not to take it lightly, he was responsible, but to forgive himself. And it is, this is, I think, a reflection all of us can reflect on. Where do you, do you, carry a sense of guilt about something you did do or didn't but should have done at some point? Guilt doesn't help. 
Guilt is debilitating. To simply be present and say, yes, I did it. And I'm a human being, as each of us are. We're all human beings. So vulnerable, so fallible, knowing that we go forth with our good heart. Best we can do, isn't it? It's the best we can do. So now I want to come back to my story and the critical voice that was going on in my mind and saying, well, you were really a coward not to, to go to that. What, what's the problem with you? After a few days, well, fortunately, I've done some practice. And practice helped. I said, wait a minute. I really need to go back and look at what was happening when I said no. And I realized when I dropped the critical voice and looked at it that I really acted and made a decision on what I felt was appropriate for me at the time. I also realized that part of my reason for hanging in there, because I said yes like a week before, I think, and then, you know, it was during the week, I said, eh, I really shouldn't, but then I thought, well, you know, I'm a teacher, I should be out there and up there on Saturday morning involved in that. So what I realized when I started looking at this honestly was, wait a minute, I took a decision that is to not go despite what anybody might think of me, because that was one reason I thought I would stick in, because Julie would think, oh, well, she's not you know, whatever. Anybody else would think, oh, well, she's not whatever. No, I took a decision because it was right. And the funny irony was, here I was criticizing myself for taking a courageous, a fairly basically kind of a courageous decision. I bring that out and say that, not only to bear my soul, so to speak, but what about you? What about you? Mm -hmm. So this is always, it's what about us? What about me? For each question, this is what it is about. So, do you ask yourself what's true for you when you're faced with choices? Or, are there times when you simply go ahead and go ahead and do something because lots of other people around you are doing it? Oh, well, I'll just go ahead and do it anyway. We really need to discern. Our life is so important. Your life is important. Living up to what you really sense is true. The highest thing, the best thing for you. So asking you, are you, and if you do something that you feel you shouldn't have, are you self-forgiving afterwards? Or do you keep playing that record over and over and over? Just asking. Something for us to consider, each of us to consider. So there's a second factor involved in all of this that I will mention to you. Uh, a second personal outcome from this, and I will say the August rally, and particularly this one event, had a tangential but not the only role in it. Um, after the rally, my critical voice, which was in high gear anyway, got into the uh, um, mode saying, well, let's face it, you're just old. You're over the hill. <laughs> or you're going over the hill anyway. This is what's happening, and you just didn't want to face all of that. And um, let me just say, first of all, you know, this critical voice kind of bought into this energy in our culture. Old people are over the hill. You know, they're sitting there playing bingo. And frankly, I didn't see bingo as being part of my life, or my lifestyle, at least not now. 
And I was really averse to this idea that I'm, that I'm old. Uh, not only averse, but it was kind of scary to be old. You know, it was really, I could feel it in my body. There was tightness in my chest and in, in my solar plexus. So let me say, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being old. And it doesn't have to be about bingo, right? It's a choice. It's a choice that we have. And I'd also like to point out that as a culture, you know, we call people who are elderly seniors. In some traditional cultures, they're called elders. You hear the, the difference? I think that we in our society need to be able to shift and recognize that older people are elders. That is the repository of some wisdom. Now, it's not true about all older people, but a lot of us, you know, give ourselves some credit. It is true. And then coming up with all of that, when I started looking at this clearly, I saw, you know what? The voice is right, I am old. And I will tell you, I'm 76. That's old by anybody's definition. Well, maybe, maybe not by your definition, but by <laughs> most anybody else's definition. <laughs> okay, by most anybody else's definition. And gerontologists, you know, categorize as our scientists do and everything. Old age starts up these days, we're told, between uh, 65 to 74 is called old, it's called young old age. And then 75 to 84 is old, old age. I'm in old, old age. And 85 and older are the oldest. That's how it, that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at any rate, what I came to realize through all this kind of siege of things was, yes, I am old. But I came to realize something else. First of all, because I don't feel particularly old. I feel pretty young in many ways. But what I came to realize is that being old isn't a problem. It's the mindset about being old that's the problem. If we are practicing, as every one of us is, regardless of what our age is, then it means that every moment we are called on to live fully where we are in our life. And it doesn't matter how old or how young. Hmm? That's what it's all about. I came out of all of this kind of introspection on this topic with really excitement about what it means to be old, old age by the gerontologist. You know, this is exciting. Every moment is an adventure, can be an adventure in life, regardless of your age. So um, I'm not going to talk anymore about EEP. Do we quit at 8? 8.30, thank you. And so our time is new, and I'm alarmed that it's over with. Um, I want to talk about something <clears throat> more common to us all, and that is transitions. We all face transitions in life all of the time. Uh, as Buddha said, Buddha said, you know, impermanence, it's a mark of existence. And we say, yeah, yeah, I know that. And, you know, we point to the obvious things of summer, fall, winter, spring, and whatever else, the gray hairs. But when we really start looking at this impermanence, there's a lot of ways of looking at it. And I just want to talk about one tonight. Recognize that human life is a series of transitions. 
And I don't think we can obviously see, you know, an infant's got its agenda, right? It's got to learn how to walk and to talk and to stop wetting its diaper or soiling its diapers. And the kids who go to school have to learn how to go to school and how to make friends or not, and so forth. Every single, you know, it's a period in life has its agenda. The poet David White talks about the importance of being with the curve of your life. He said most people are behind the curve of their life. They don't move with it. Why? Because you're com we're comfortable with what's familiar. Hmm? We know it. We want to hang on to it. And most people hang on to what's familiar. The unknown is unfamiliar. Being behind the curve. And we can see this at almost any age, right? Almost any age. Uh, young married people, for example, being very young, still thinking, you know, we're out having the parties that we did before we were married and kind of free or whatever. And there's a story that came to my mind when I was thinking about this, something I read in the news, and that was about a young married couple, very young married couple, who had uh, two little ones, a, a four-year-old and a baby. And they, were, they themselves were just teenagers. And they, tended, they would go out at night, or whenever they went out, and they'd leave the little one, the four-year-old, in charge. And one night they did that, they went out, they left the four-year-old in charge, and he turned on the stove, and both babies, both children died in the fire. The parents were later imprisoned or the neglect. Be, talk about tragedy. Talk about being behind the curve of their life. They were immature to begin with. They didn't go with the responsibilities of their, of their, uh, of their age, of their place in life. And I think we can all think of so many examples of people who aren't. And I don't mean to be just sexist about it, but you know, when you, men, and I hope there's nobody in this room who does that. You, you know, if they're balding and put their hair over the bald spot. No, no, uh, Joe just did. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> peace. <laughs> you know, we can think of many examples. So again, thinking of this, I thought of an example. Some of you may know, of, I remember Joan Baez's song. You remember that one, Jesse Come Home? Yeah, some of us, us older. Our, our elders amongst us remember Jesse come home. In this, Joan Baez sang, as only Joan Baez can, to Jesse, asking him to come home and telling him that she was going to, that she was leaving the light on the stairway on at night, and moreover that the, talked about her bedspread, the bedspread, the blues and the greens have been recently cleaned, and she wanted him to come home to see it. And by the end of the song, you really, really wanted Jesse to go home. I mean, you could just feel it tangibly, and you had this great doubt. You think he really never probably did uh, go home. So, you know, I would say being with the curve of your life. I would say Jane, Jane, uh, Joan's song, Joan Baez's song. This woman wasn't with the curve, I mean, the one she was thinking about, wasn't with the curve of her life. 
Now, I'm not saying she should have forgotten Jesse, but I think she should have gotten rid of the bedspread. <laughs> and I, I, think she should, I think she should have gone out and just lived her life and enjoyed it. You know, and yes, hold Jesse dear, but leaving the light on and so forth was too much. Hmm? So then the question, the question is recognizing for each of us, when is it time for you, for me, for each of us to move on, to be in harmony with our life, with your life, to be in sync with your life, to be with the curve of your life. Um, there was a, there is a beautiful um, interview uh, on being Krista Tippett talking to Mary Catherine Bateson. Uh, she is the daughter of Margaret Mead, who was the 20th century pioneer anthropologist, and Gregory Bateson. So this is a really powerful interview. She talks about, um, and she's a writer, a woman of wisdom, and, and she talks about the importance of making your life an improvisation. Your life is an improvisation, she said. You create it as you go along. You create it as you go along. You're always composing your life. This is what it should be, always composing your life, being an artist in your own life, as she said. And then she talked about the harvest of produce that occurs when we live like that. And then she used a wonderful phrase, wisdom on the hoof. Isn't that great? Wisdom on the hoof, that's what happens. And I think thinking about us in spiritual practice, that's what we're doing. It's wisdom on the hoof. Hmm? Wisdom on the hoof. I came across a statement recently by a man who is a trapeze artist. And he commented that when you're on that trapeze and you're swinging to and fro, when that trapeze reaches the highest point, he called that the dead spot. He said that flicker of a second is just the second when you've got a choice. Do you catapult off into the unknown before you grab whatever is there, the other bar or the whatever is there to grab? Or you, do you swing back? Do you swing and keep swinging back? Or do you catapult? Do you go for it? And I think maybe dead spot may not be the best, but that's, I mean, he knew it from experience, but maybe we'll call it a possibility point, a choice point. It's the choice point. And I think that for all of us, we can look at, do we have choice points? These are major points. To go out, to improvise, to create. Is it in front of you? And if it is in front of you, what are you doing about it? Those people who swing back because it's known and familiar, you know, you can swing, spend the rest of our life swinging. Hmm? The rest of our life swinging, or else we can catapult. That doesn't mean always great success or we're going to catch the bar, by the way. We could miss the bar. So it has to be an unconditional catapult. Unconditional. But we're going for it. Going for it in this life. So what holds us back from catapulting, from going where we see our life is holding out for us to go? And I think, first of all, it's fear. 
all the tangles that are inside within that haven't yet been addressed enough. I, believe me, I don't think there's ever perfection. I may be wrong, maybe there's some of you here who worked with people or worked with yourself enough to feel like, you know, we really got this one aced. I don't know that, but I do know that you can work enough with it that you're willing to take the leap. You're willing to take the leap and try go for it. And what enables us to take the leap? I think, as I said, the, the work, the inner work we do, the practice we do, I think courage is also involved. The Buddha talked about courageous energy. You need courageous energy to go, go ahead and let go of that bar, let go of that trapeze. And I also think the idea of the sacredness of life, really experiencing, knowing, having a, a real heart feeling for this, my life is sacred. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. So I want to kind of close this with a poem. Well, coming to the close with a poem. It's by Antonio Machado, a 19th and 20th century Spanish poet. It's called The Wind One Brilliant Day. The wind, one brilliant day, called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. In return for the odor of my jasmine, I'd like all the odor of your roses. I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. Well then, I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves and the waters of the fountain. The wind left and I wept. And I said to myself, what have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? The wind left and I wept. And I said to myself, what have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? This is grim. And I'm not suggesting any of you here have no garden. That's not the suggestion. But I do think the poem carries questions that we need to keep asking ourselves all the time, all the time, regardless of whatever garden we've had in the past. And I think the question is, what am I doing with a garden entrusted to me now? Am I cultivating a September garden in September? Or am I trying to make lilacs that bloom in May, bloom in September? Are the tulips of April, am I trying to make them bloom in September? You know, ultimately it's not about age or time of year. Ultimately it's about what you, each of us, knows deeply to be the, the, the questions in your life, the transitions that are right there in front of you and you may make or choose not to make. And I think that's what's it, what it's about. So now I do want to finish, and I'm going to finish with a gata. Maybe some of you don't know what a gata is. You've all heard of a mantra, I think. Mantra are words that are repeated over and over. We don't do it so much in our tradition, but in some traditions, uh, repeated over and over, and they become their own practice. Well, a gata is a verse, a chant that's repeated over and over to the same effect. And I'm going to repeat, uh, uh, chant or sing a gata 
that a woman named Sarah Jenkins has created. She's been a Zen practitioner for many, many years. Oh, the ego inside is fretting. There's something so upsetting. But here's one thing I know. Let it go, let it go, let it go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>